How many people have been to New York City? Hey, a good hand. How many people really love going to New York City? Awesome. How many people don't like going to New York City? Oh, there's a few. Marco, why don't you like going to New York City? Too dirty. Well, yeah, if you, if you really get close to the floor and kind of smudge your hand on it, you feel it. <laughs> what? They're in a bad mood. No, I, th- I don't think so. I find they all say hi. Actually, I, my wife and I, our kids were there a couple of years ago, and we had just, we were looking to try and walk on the, um, the Brooklyn Bridge and walk across it, and we were trying to find the route. There was some construction, so it was hard to get on it. We met a wonderful lady who lives in Brooklyn, and uh, we started chatting with her, and she said, she found that we're from Montreal. She's like, oh, I visited there. She said, your city is so beautiful, and she said, it's so clean, that's what she said. So, so that made sense. Um, I was chatting with a friend of mine. Uh, well, not chatting. We were just uh, on social media together. And he had posted, he lives in New York City. He's a pastor in Staten Island. And many New Yorkers will be posting today and this weekend, you know, I remember when this, or I remember where I was um, when the towers went down. Um, we have cousins that live just outside of New York and they're both nurses. Uh, and um, both of them were, one of them was just in university starting to be a nurse and she was literally walking towards the towers when it happened and then ran back to her hospital to help in any way she could. Um, her brother-in-law is a, poli- a, a fireman and was working for the district fire department in Manhattan that was called on the scene that day and his crew um, went in and he had a later shift. When he arrived to the firehouse, they were gone, already going towards the towers. There were real people who had real experiences there. And so people these days, like a friend of mine, this pastor in Staten Island, who posts things like, I remember where I was. And he wrote something that really struck me. He said, I remember how the grocery stores were quiet even months later, where there was a, a hush a quietness in people's voices that there was almost a sense of reverence, a sense of um, serenity that they were pursuing. And it seems as though for when you get to know a New Yorker, you know much they love the city and they talk about the city. There was a connection point that all of them started to feel at a deeper level. They felt something that they didn't feel before. And it's tragic that 9-11 forced them to recognize something about their fellow New Yorker. Maybe they didn't even realize before. The value, the purpose, the dignity people had. That the person they would lock eyes with every morning, regardless of where they worked or where they lived, that they were people of value. And it suddenly struck them in a deeper way after 9-11. Think about that question. What makes people matter? What makes people valuable? We might say like our experiences with people, the the love we share with friends or family, the joy, uh, the friendship. And maybe days like 9-11 force uh, us to look deeper. Maybe it's, it's moments like that that force us to look deeper and ask the question, why do people matter? And I ask the question now because this question's in my mind is, is there a better reason a more vital, truthful reason to value another human being than we often realize. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory, and and one of the popular quotes from that book is this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Later on in the book, in that same chapter, he says, next to the blessed sacrament, in other words, communion, the wine and bread or Eucharist, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And you think about this this line that C.S. Lewis writes, and if you know C.S. Lewis, you know that he became a Christian later in life uh, in a a very strong literary career. He wrote many, many books, and one of the popular ones that have been on the screen um, has been Disney's reproduction of the Chronicles of Narnia and three of the the seven stories. But think about, where would C.S. Lewis get this idea that, that there are no ordinary people that next to the Eucharist itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Where would he get that? The audacity to say that about another person. I want, I want you to turn, uh, if you've got your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And for the next several weeks, we're going to kind of base ourselves out of this text and um, use pieces of it to be springboards into some topics. But today we want to root ourselves in it and um, start as a way of introduction in a series we're starting today. And So I want to read this with you. It's, it's uh, towards the end of the creation story in Genesis 1. And uh, the author um, paints the picture of creation as seven days and we find ourselves on the sixth day of creation here in verse 26. And um, it says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Let's pause and pray for a moment. Father, our heart's desire would be that... Um, this scripture, that your words would, um, would speak into our lives and into our hearts, um, into our journey of growth as followers of Jesus, but also for some that are seeking today or exploring, that you would uh, speak there as well to show us who you are. And so we invite you, we just say welcome to the work uh, that your spirit does when we open the scriptures and we uh, just long for you to speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is such an amazing portion of scripture. In fact, uh, some scholars call it, I believe they call it kind of like a chair, a chair passage because you, so many other parts of scripture lean on this even without talking about it. 
And uh, it's a theme, whether spoken of directly, uh, but very often even indirectly, uh, just under, understanding, even when you read some of Paul's letters, he doesn't always quote this, but he'll lean on it, and you can see it in some of his writings. And I love this text because chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis is like a whole section of the scriptures that's probably one of the smallest sections, but yet the beginning foundational section. And after chapter 2, a whole new, uh, not a new story, but like just how we see humanity and God's story unfold uh, continues. But chapter 1 and 2 are such a pivotal it's such a pivotal part of the scriptures. And I love the context. Imagine that you were part of the nation of Israel who were ex- experienced uh, who God was in certain ways. And you looked back already at a time of history where you look back to some of, the, some of your forefathers like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now you're already the people of Israel that came out of those people and their families. And you think of a guy like Abraham who, who experienced the God of the universe unlike anything he did before. He came from a Sumerian culture that worshipped other gods, that were involved in cultic um, faiths or religions, uh, where, where the tribes and the nations of that time often had sculptures and, and uh, you know, uh, figurines uh, made up of the gods that they were worshipping. Often they would do physical acts like slit their wrists, wrists or dances or things to, to manipulate the gods to help them or call on them. And here's their forefather, Abraham, who hears the voice of God. And one author, Thomas Cahill, says he imagines it that, that when Abraham first hears God's voice and first starts to, to, to get to know this God that he never knew before, he realizes one thing that's so different from every other culture around him, that he cannot manipulate that God. Amen. That he cannot force that God to do anything. That, that this God that he's encountered is unlike any of the gods that his people or tribes around him would have aspired to or worship. And imagine yourself being Israel and knowing all this, but then stuck in Egypt for years and then eventually becoming slaves. And you are being formed in the way of Pharaoh, in the way of Egypt, and not even, you're really a subpar person who is viewed as a slave and this attempt to form you in that way. In Genesis, as, as, they, as they come to discover the story of the God who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they start to realize they're not called to be formed in the way of Egypt. They're called to be formed differently. And Genesis fills in the story for them to prevent them from believing a lie. To prevent them from believing a lie about themselves Believing a lie of maybe uh, what the world or the culture around them would want them to believe about God? And I think Genesis answers these two questions for them and for all of us. I think they're common questions many people ask. Who is God and who am I? Or you can say even plurally, who is God and who are we? And we ask these questions in different ways. Like sometimes we say like, what governs my life? Or what gives my life meaning? Or where did I come from? Or why does my life matter? Or you might ask, you know, why am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do with the capacity I have to reason and to create and to make decisions? And here in this poetic declaration in chapter one of Genesis, it speaks to these questions, speaks to these questions so profoundly. And imagine 2000 years of Christian tradition would have singled out these verses that we read, especially verse 26 to 28, with special attention because there was this notion, this idea, this belief that human beings, not just Christians, 
but that human beings were created in God's image. That every person we lock eyes with is created in the image of God. And so we, we want to start a series today called Image Bearers and, and take a look. You know, what does it mean for, to, to know and understand that humanity bears the image of their creator? And why does that matter? And, and what difference does that make in your life or my life, in the decisions we make, in the life we lead, in, in the way we even interact with our Lord? And then later on, we want to, in the series, we want to kind of come around and say, well, how does Jesus work in our lives to, in connection to this? But we're going to look at a whole bunch of different topics, but the main idea is, hey, what does it mean to be an image bearer? And why is that important? These two verses, verse 26 and 27, are really kind of stand out. Let us, here's God speaking, and some, many theologians will say that this is God with the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father uh, collectively making these decisions. Some will also include like a heavenly host, let us. But it, it's a beautiful way of seeing um, a picture of God in that time period that would have been seen as bigger, stronger, um, larger than any other God that people would have related to or talked to. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And then verse 27, and here's a three-line poem. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, when I say the word poem, I don't mean it's a fairy tale. I just mean it's poetic. It's the way that the author wrote this and put this together. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Think about what that means for how we view other people. Think about what that means for how you view the person you're sitting beside today. Um, maybe in your head you're thinking, they could have put something better on, maybe. But they're an image bearer. <laughs> they're created in God's image. Maybe you're thinking, wow, I love that outfit. Regardless, right? doesn't matter. Now everybody's self-conscious at the moment, I'm sorry. But um, the, point, the point is this. What, when we, this is such a core um, truth for what it means to understand who we are and who the people in our lives are and the people around the world. Image is, in Hebrew, is the word salam, and often it can be used as the word idol or the word icon. In Greek, it's translated icon. Interestingly, because it's an image of something else. It's not the original. It's an image of something else. And of course, that sounds pretty interesting because other religions would make these gods to reflect their god. But God says, no, I'm going to make an icon to reflect to the world who I am. I'm going to make humans. I'm not going to make statues. Make humans. There's something beautiful about that in and of itself. The image reflects where it came from, what it's meant to be. We bear God's image. We've been created by him. And, and as, 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 as extraordinary as this sounds, and it's so hard to even comprehend, is like we actually share characteristics with God. Now, don't use that in an argument when you think you're right. But there is some truth there. We share some characteristics with God. We represent him. The word likeness, that we've been created in his likeness, is, the, is a word that means you know, an appearance of something. That when you see this, you think of that. There's a likeness from this to that. That when God created humanity, there's a likeness in us that represents God. There's a likeness in us that represents God. 
the author didn't choose, only chose these words in Genesis 1 and 2. But in Genesis chapter 5, when, when the author talks about uh, Adam's son, Seth, in 5 verse 3, it uses the same word to describe Adam's son. In a sense, there's something in Seth that reflects Adam. Now, the author didn't choose the word son in Genesis 1 and 2, in a sense as being a child that way. But it hints of something, and it's interesting that the gospel writer Luke, in Luke chapter 3.33, he lists his whole genealogy from Adam to Jesus, and at the end, in verse 38, he says, Adam, God's son, or the son of God. It's not the same title used for Jesus. It's not a view of divinity, but it's, it's something that Luke connects with. There's something in Adam, in humanity, that reflects God, our creator. Something Adam had, humanity has, that's a derivative of God. When Paul speaks to like this Athenian crowd in Greece and around the Areopagus where, where there was like philosophers and teachers and people who were discussing important things and, and he went around and look, looked around the city and he took a walk and, and he, he looked at all these idols and being built and shared and, he, and then there was one that said like to an unknown God and when he spoke to people he said, I want to tell you who this unknown God is. He says, for in him we move and breathe and have our being. And he said, we are his offspring. Paul used these words to help this Athenian or Greek group of people somehow make a connection. I want, to know, I want you to know how valuable you are. And I want, to know, I want you to know where you come from. You're his offspring. There's something powerful in those words. Last night we were, had a family function for my wife's family. And her and her brothers and sisters all discovered something really strange. And um, I was listening to them talk, and I'm like, you guys just gave me a great story for tomorrow morning, but I, I didn't say it. So first, her brother discovered that, like, jokingly, when his kids would go up the stairs, he'd, he'd pinch them, pinch kind of like their thigh or whatever, you know, or their butt. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how else to say it. So, so th- then as they were talking, his sister's like, I, I do that too. And then my wife's like, oh my goodness, I do that too. And then... All of a sudden, like all brothers and sisters are like, we all pinch our kids when they walk up the stairs. They made this like this revelation hit and they're like, why, why do we do that? Why do we all do that? Why do we have this in common? And I thought it's so interesting. They're part of the same family siblings. There's something in them that they all share this weird characteristic, but but it, make, it makes sense, right? When a friend of mine, like who doesn't know who my son Andrew is, you know, I remember getting a call once or twice. It's like my son was at an, in another place, another gathering, and then a friend of mine would say, hey, I think I saw your son today. Is Andrew your son? It's like, yeah, Andrew's my son. Oh, man, I just knew right away that he was your son. In fact, there was a moment when Andrew was dressed up. Uh, he was a little younger. He was dressed up for a wedding, and he was in a suit. You know, I think he was like 12 years old or something. And we, there was a moment I looked at him, how his legs were crossed, how his hand was on his knee, the way his face and hair looked. I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's my dad when he like, was a teenager. And we resemble, right? There's a likeness to us and those we come from. That's part of what... What, what the author is getting at when he talks about that we're created in God's image. And there's such a beauty in that. The beauty and also the tension is that even with my son Andrew, he's both an original creation and he's very glad that he's not a carbon copy of me. Like you just talk to him later and he'll tell you. But he's not me. He's not my equal. He's not my carbon copy for sure, right? We're not equal in that way. But he, he's an original. He's uniquely wired. But at the same time, there's much of me in him. And there's nothing he can do about that. 
unfortunately, right? Um, we're not God. We're not equal with God. New Age teachers get really confused here when they talk about this. But we do have his characteristics. We are made in his likeness. We are created in his image. And we, when we ask the question, who are we? We need to go back to this basic truth in Genesis 1. We're created in the image of God, in his likeness. He made us. He made us. To help answer that question, I want to answer the first question. Who is God? Because if we're made in God's image, then it's important to say, well, whose image are we made in? Who is God? And when we, we don't have time to like detailed go through Genesis 1 and 2, but what do we learn from God in Genesis 1 and 2? Think about it. Right from the beginning, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We get a sense that our God is a creator. He's creative. The first thing we know about God is that he has this amazing creative capacity. What kind? Heavens and earth type of creative capacity. What kind of capacity? The capacity to fill the heavens and the earth. One of the, wor- the words create is often noticed as a word that means creating out of nothing. So if I were to go paint something, I'd need paint. But God doesn't need paint. He can create paint out of nothing. If I need to you know, plant some flowers, I need some dirt first. I'd have to get some of that dirt before I get creative with my landscaping. God can create out of nothing. He doesn't need anything to create. This is part of who God is. He doesn't need raw material to create, but... The beauty, too, is it's more than just creative ability. It's this idea that the way he creates is never connected to the, is not exactly the way we create. So we don't, you don't create a link between, oh, I can create like God, therefore I am God. God creates in a whole other level. But there's a characteristic of that that is passed on. There's another way of thinking about that, like God's an author, have you ever seen um, you know, movies or, or read stories where one of the central characters is actually the author and the author has um, this incredible power that what the author writes happens? That the power of the author's words come into being? God, ha- we see this in Genesis 1 and 2. The power of God's word when he says, let there be light. Let, let, let the expanse here just be divided. Let there be food and vegetation that grows. Let there be animals and let it come to being that whatever is in God's imagination, he can make it happen. I don't know if you ever read the, the books from C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. The first book when these two kids, not the same kids in the movie books, because if those are the only ones you've read, then maybe you haven't read the first part of the story. There's these first two kids that discover Narnia for the first time. And when they meet Aslan, the lion, who C.S. Lewis makes a connection or a metaphor with Jesus Christ, there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful um, scene in the story of the first book where Aslan thinks and speaks and something just comes out of the ground. This is an amazing, powerful, creative word that Aslan has. And he's a type of Jesus, of God in the story. So like an author, God imagines into being and it just happens and you think about it, this God, some scholars would say he has authoritative sovereignty, meaning that what he desires um, to be, he, he can make be. Like a king setting up a kingdom, God, when he sets up his kingdom, he, he envisions it a certain way. 
So he has authoritative sovereignty that way. But he's also not just an author, he's an artisan. And an artisan is one who thinks so deeply and carefully and thoughtfully about the things he's doing. No, if you buy bread at the grocery store or you buy an artisan bread, it's different, right? It also costs you four times as much. But there's a difference, right? The way the bread is made, mass-produced, stuck in bags, cut, and go home, versus like, this is an artisan bread. This was thoughtfully put together, cooked. When you look at the six days of creation, they're, they're also poetically put together. The author of, of Genesis, in an artisan-type way, helped paint the picture of who God was and how he created the universe. It's poetic, it's beautiful. And I want to, uh, some scholars look at it almost as two panels, like two canvases that come together. So if you can go to the, the next slide, I want you, to, want you to think about that. So... Here we have panel one, like the first three days of creation as it's written in Genesis 1. And, and we see that the creator creates form. Day and night is split. Sky and water is split. Land and vegetation is made possible. But in panel two, God fills, fills the form. He fills the form with light. He fills the land and sea with fish and birds. He, fi- uh, uh, yeah, he fills the land then with animals and eventually creates humans. It's these two kind of creative panels. When you put them together, you have our world, you have our life. Now look at this as an artisan, as a designer. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The earth was formless and empty. Some of your versions say void. But then God creates form, and God fills the form, and Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 says, thus the heavens and the earth were accomplished, and all its hosts. So the formlessness and the emptiness is now completed and filled, because God, our artisan creator, created. He, He was working and creating in that way. This one writer says this, John Middleton, he says, superimposed on and integrated with the picture of God speaking creation into being is the metaphor of God as designer and artificer, constructing with care, attention, obvious pleasure and self-investment as a good artist, a coherent, harmoniously functioning cosmos according to a well-thought-out plan. God is an artist who created the form and filled the form and breathed life into it. God is also one who discerns. He sees. He saw what was created, what he created. He gives names and purpose to that. God mandates. He tells Adam and Eve and humanity, be fruitful and multiply. We're going to get to that in this series. What does it mean to rule? What does it mean to be mandated to, to, to uh, be creative and, and lead and work and, and do something in our world? So God mandates, God relates. He doesn't just create humanity. He longs for relationship with humanity because he's a relational God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Theologians call it the dance within the Trinity that they love and, and speak and create and act. And that's something we see. So where do you and I fit into this? I love this. Day six, when God creates humanity, what we read earlier before, when God creates humanity, the words of the author and the artisan come out, let us make mankind in our image. And on that day, on that specific day in day six, only after creating humanity, there's this, I'm going to get like English here, English school language, this adverb is stuck 
into place before this adjective. Who's going to school tomorrow to do English? You can like tell your teacher this tomorrow. She's going to love you or he's going to love you. So, so this adverb is what an adverb, right? Gives intensity to an adjective. An adjective describes a noun. So tomorrow, if you go to school and your teacher says, Hey, how's, how's your day? You say, today is a very good day. And then you can say, I just use an adverb intensifying an adjective, describing a noun. Boom, give me an A+. Anyways, that's... Um, but day six, what's written about at the end of creation, God brings this to completion, and this adverb is inserted there. Every other day, we read, this was good. But on day six, at the day of completion, and the climax of creation, when humanity is created, this was very good. This was very good. Nothing else in creation is created in God's image and likeness. And on that climactic day, day six, only humanity is created in God's image and God's likeness. When we ask who we are, that's who we are. Now, here's the beautiful thing. We're created in the image of an artisan, a creator, a discerner, a relator, a mandator, In his likeness. God is superior to us in all these things. Remember, we're not equal to him. But we do have resemblances to him. But there's something in us, remember, resembles him. Bears that image. So let me ask you some questions as we bring this to a close this morning. Why do you have the ability to create? Why do you... Who dreamed up a Ferrari or a BMW or a Kia. Kias are nice. Um, wh- where did you get the, the capacity to reason, to argue? Some of you argue really well. To, to discern, to debate. How is it that there's something in, in, in all of us in different levels that we want to bring order into chaos? How is that? Who, where did you get that from? Why do you feel rest is vital? Besides just knowing that you have to sleep, there's something in you that, talk, that knows that rest is important. Why is it that you can discern when something is going wrong with a friend? Why is it that you crave relationships? Or we crave relationships? Where'd you get that craving from? And, you know, so many people want to give you an answer, right? The story of the scriptures, the beginning of the scriptures say, because you resemble your creator. Because you've been created in the image of God. And you bear his likeness. And your God is like that. And you share his likeness. And God says this about the image bearer. About you and me. I know, maybe you don't feel it this morning, but God says this about you and me. You are very good. This is not a moral statement, necessarily. But it's just a statement of God's pleasure with his creation, with you and me. His image bearers that he created. He says, you are very good. Now, we know that there's more to the story. We know that Genesis 3 happens, if you've tracked with the story. We know, you know, that God went on a, on a rescue and mission, you know, post-Genesis 2, to, to restore a world that, that started to fall short of his image and what it meant to fully be created his image we know that but isn't it amazing that this is where the gospel begins this is where the story of God's God begins that we are created in his in, in his image to bear his likeness that right here God's initial intent for us is to represent him and reflect him now you might get that 
a little bit more as a follower of Christ because you get into the scriptures. But what would happen if everybody on the planet would even just discover this truth about themselves? They were created to be an image bearer of God, to reflect him, to represent him. Some would be freaked out by that. But some would be like, is that that's, should be my story? And some of us forget that. You are the image of God. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close. And um, Scott McKnight wrote a book called Embracing Grace. And he highlights part of it, what it means to be an, an image bearer. And he shares this story from a pastor in Wisconsin in the States that had, was speaking at a, just a national convention with other leaders and people. And he challenged this national convention to begin their view of the gospel by embracing the fact that they've been created as God's image bearer. And he says this towards the end of his talk. He says, some say I'm DNA. Some say I'm a product of my society. Some say I'm merely a smart animal, a massive brainwaves, or a calculating will to power. The evolutionary biologist, the psychologist, the environmentalist, the biochemist, the sociologist, the economist, the PhD ethicists, they all call me something. Then he asked this question, but you church, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What's our answer? Our answer is that every single person we lock eyes with is an image bearer of God. And that when you look in the mirror, you're looking at another image bearer. And that when you look at a friend you're meeting for coffee later today, you're looking at an image bearer. And when you look at your spouse, you're looking at an image bearer. And when they look at you, they're looking at an image bearer. All this is so vital. So when C.S. Lewis said, Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. That's where we start to understand what it means to, be, to have value as God's creation. We are his image bearers, created in his likeness. And I can't help but think that later on in the New Testament, when John wrote about Jesus and said, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Right? And later, of course, it continues that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But when you think about that, for God so loved the world, what, what does that mean? God so loved his image bearers. Sure, God loves the world, but God loves his image bearers. He loves his creation. And as Paul said, he loves his offspring. And so as we start this series, as we, we uh, you know, move into other topics this month and and ongoing, we just want to start right here today to recognize this amazing, beautiful truth we're created in the image of our Creator. Let's pray. I even just need a moment to let that sink in for me.
Father, we welcome um, your message to us through the beginning of your story. In my own heart and mind, I know there's, there could be a wrestling, you know, the, my logical intuition, my doctrinal intuition, my moral intuition. Maybe you want to put a but after what you wrote in Genesis 1 and 2. But I don't look like an image bearer. But could the God of the universe really love me that much? But what about sin? God, we, we, we pause, pause right now and just, we ask you, remove those buts. Remove those pauses. Remove that so we can, for one moment today, recognize that you have created us in your image, in your likeness. And that your intent for us is to reflect your heart, your characteristics. That that is the best kind of life that you would long for us and what you want us to reflect to the world. God, let us pause for this moment and just dwell in this beautiful truth. You loved, and out of your love, your intention and creation created humanity. And you love us so much. And you have a purpose and a vision for us. And we thank you. We thank you that you have revealed more of what that vision and purpose is for us. And as we've seen, you love the world so much, you sent Jesus to make sure that we would not miss the full intent of what it means to bear your likeness. God, we, we welcome the work of your spirit to show us uh, where we need to grow in that today and this week. And we pray for this rest of this series that you would guide us, lead us um, to, to parts in your story, that, in your scripture that we need to hear and wrestle with. May we go out today just um, locking eyes with people and recognizing that they're made in your image. May that change the way we look at them, talk to them, and treat them. And may it change the way we view ourselves too. In your name we pray. Amen.